Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are going to um, look this morning together at the beginning of Parshat Tzav. So this is the... Uh, we've got the instructions for sacrifices. I can't help you now. In last week's Parsha. In Parshat uh, Vayikra, we got the description of the different kinds of offerings, the korbanot, the sacrifices, and we now we're going to get some different kind of instruction, which we'll see. So we talked last week, yeah, about the word for sacrifice comes from this shoresh, which means to draw close, right? Um, and so if you just add a nun you get korban, because we have to put a dagesh in the bet. So this is about coming close. This, all of these offerings are about drawing close, um, drawing the divine close to the people of Israel by drawing the divine presence into the camp, by clearing away the yuckiness, um, as we talked about, of sin. And we uh, also then are bringing something from us that we're offering, and that is us drawing close uh, to the divine. So we're going to look at the text of Leviticus chapter 6. Bert, you want to unmute yourself and read? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command Aaron and his sons thus. This is the ritual of the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain where it is burned upon the altar all night until morning, while the fire on the altar is kept going on it. The priest shall dress in linen raiment with linen breeches next to his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. He shall then take off his vestments and put on other vestments and carry the ashes outside of the camp to a pure place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning, not to go out. Every morning the priest shall uh, feed wood to it, lay out the burnt offering on it, and turn into smoke the fat parts of the offerings of well-being. A perpetual fire shall be kept burning on the altar, not to go out. Okay. So let's look at that first bit of business that God is saying to Moshe. Moshe So we get God speaking to Moshe, saying, and verse 2, Tzav et Aharon ve'et banav lemor. So command Aharon and his sons, saying, and it's interesting, the rabbis point to this word sav, command, because it's, it's why, why doesn't it just say, you know, tell Aharon and his sons, this is what they're supposed to do. Instruct them, this is what they're supposed to do. Why, why does it need to say tzav? And why doesn't just God command them? God says to Moshe, go and command Aaron and his sons, saying, um, zot torat ha'ola. And this is, uh, we're getting this word for the first time. We're getting this word Torah. So Torah ha'olah. So this is the Torah of the Olah. So Torah here, of course, doesn't mean what we think when we think Torah as a specific book or set of books or even the concept in general. This is a very specific thing. Torah ha'olah. This is the instruction around the Olah. So this is, we're going to get, uh, in total, we're going to get 10 Torot for the priests. Five Torot 
are going to have to do with uh, exactly how to perform the sacrifices. And five Torot are going to be dealing with impurity. So we get 10 Torot in general. And um, I'm going to be quoting a lot from Dr. Uh, Tamar Kamienkowski's uh, book, which is part of the um, Wisdom Commentary series, which is a feminist uh, Bible commentary. And her book is, of course, she got the book Leviticus. So Dr. Tamar Kamienkowski, who, who teaches at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, she says... Uh, that the reason that we're getting this word instruction here, this is Torah Ta'olah, and we're going to get 10 Torah, as I said. Um, for her, that supports the theory that the chapters before this, all of the descriptions of the different sacrifices before this were meant for a general audience, the general Israelite, if you will. Uh, but now we're getting Torah. And so Torah is actually a teaching for the priests. So for her, the fact that this is this is a different way of talking about the details of the sacrifices, this is actual instruction. For her, that's an argument in favor of um, the other stuff that we learned was so that the Israelites knew what the priests were supposed to be doing. Because in many, uh, most even, I would say, maybe, maybe all, I don't know. I don't know that anybody does. But in the ancient Near East, in those systems, when you had a priesthood, and you did, you had a priesthood in all of those uh, religions of the ancient world, of the ancient Near East, when you, when you have instruction for them, it's secret. Everything that they're doing, they're doing in secret. And that's part of the power and, and the, um, the exclusivity of the priesthood is that it's absolutely secret. So you couldn't just open the you know, Egyptian Book of the Dead. Like the priests who were dealing with that stuff could read those texts, but nobody else. So, and remember, and, and ancient Israel is no different than other ancient Near Eastern civilizations when we talk about the methodology for offering um, things to the gods. It wasn't any different. They would take the offering from the uh, petitioner or from the you know person. They would take it, and then they would take it into the sacred precinct, and the sacred precinct was off limits to anyone but the priests. So once it got handed over to the priests, the people never saw anything that happened with that. The actual offering, the placing it before the God, all that stuff happened in secret inside the sacred precinct of the temple, the, the cult site. And, uh, and ancient Israel is no different, right? No one can go into the 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 uh, inner uh, sanctum of the Mishkan, except the priests, only the Kohanim. And only the Levim could go, only the Levites could go even a, a certain distance out from that. The people were outside the main uh, court, you know, the main extended uh, wall that was built out of fabric. So the, the outer courtyard. And so so this is secret stuff. But what makes what makes Israelite religion different if you buy the argument of someone like Tamar Kamienkowski, if you buy her argument, what makes Israel different is that the Israelites had access to the instruction. The Israelites had access 
to all of what's supposed to happen and what the priests are supposed to be doing in that private precinct, and that's new. But it's in line, right? It's in keeping with this idea that revelation was for all the people, not just for an exclusive few. So this, so this is a democratizing, right, kind of thing where the people have the knowledge to then hold the priests accountable uh, in some way. Even though they can't see what's going on, they know what's supposed to be happening. All right. So if that's true, that all these other chapters were to let Israelites know what was happening, we're now getting the actual technical manual for what the, how the priests are supposed to be dealing with the korbanot. So what do we see? So we see that um, so command uh, Aharon and his sons saying, this is the Torah of the Ola. And which is the Ola? Again, the Ola is the Holocaust that is completely consumed on the altar. And it is the first offering made in the morning. And it is the last offering made at night. And it is to stay on the altar all night. Right. So you can see where it says, "Vizot Torat Haola, He Haola Al Mukda Al Hamizbeach Kol Halayla Ad Haboker." So Mukda is its place of burning. Where's that? Al Hamizbeach on the altar. Kol Halayla all of the night. Ad Haboker until the morning. The esh hamizbeach to kadbo, and the fire on, is supposed to be burning on the altar. So the last offering of the day was also an ola, and the ola stayed burning all night. So it's completely turned into ash. And the other thing this does, if you keep a fire burning on the altar all night, it also it bakes off. It's like your grill, right? You need to fire up the grill before you're ready to cook because you want to burn off all the yucky stuff that's left from the last time you had burgers, uh, right, with your friends. So you want to make sure the altar grate gets cleaned off. And one of the ways that happens is that you have the fire going uh, all night long. But so the commentators want to go a little bit further. And they want to say, south, this, this word command so why might Aaron and his sons need uh, extra commanding w- around the Ola, around this particular sacrifice? If this is Torah Ta'ola, this is the Torah of the, um, what did I say, the, the Holocaust. Why might they need to be commanded about this and not just told what to do? Because this is because the commentators want to say because this is an ola, they need commanding. Pam they is have raising to be her, commanded. her hand. Mm-hmm. Pam, Pam, speak yeah. to me. I'm thinking if it's first thing in the morning, they will be hungry and they might eat it. <laughs> no, really. What is that? No, okay. Oh, no, no. <laughs> it was like God forbid a million times. But you're close, right? So. They don't get to eat the Ola. Right. They don't get any portion of the Ola. So why might they need to be commanded, Davka, here, I'm going to command you to give, to make the Ola in the morning and in the evening. It starts the day. Um, 
service to God and ends the day that way. For sure, that's maybe why we have the Ola there. Is it but to not the, be wasteful? How, how is it not to be wasteful? I don't know. Because <laughs> right. if the priests don't get to eat any of it, if they don't get to take any of it home, maybe, oh, you know, I forgot. I was supposed to do an Ola this morning. All right, right, sorry. Right, they, they might, they need extra prodding. They need extra oomph given dafka, especially to the Ola, because they don't get any of it. They don't get to eat any of it. it. It's of absolutely no benefit to them. And so they need a little extra fetch to, um, to bring the Ola in the morning and to bring it in the evening and to bring it with all of this, uh, the, the rabbis use the Hasidic, the uh, Kabbalistic term zrizut, you know, with all of the focus and attention and energy and um, care that they would give to anything else. Dana says maybe the extra prodding is so that they listen to the one voice, uh, meaning capital O, not some others that they may be hearing. So the, the priests make their living, right, from these, and all of their sustenance comes from receiving a portion of the sacrifices. And so in technically the Ola represents a loss to the priests. And so one of our great commentators, um, Rabbi Tversky, says that the reason the Torah uses the language of commanding zealous attention in this verse, this is how Rashi reads the verse, that Sav, this command is about, is about their careful attention to these sacrifices, is precisely because the priest could not derive personal benefit from the Ola. That that's why it means this word Sav, this, this extra kind of commandment. And so some might ask, is it even thinkable that the priests would be worried about right, not getting a share of meat? Like, this is the service of the divine, really? So Tversky says, well, apparently not. The Torah knows human better, human nature better than we do. In spite of being the greatest scholar and leader, one who is in every other way totally devoted to God, a person may retain a streak of miserliness within themselves. The Torah teaches that no one is immune. Miserliness or stinginess is a character defect which can affect the great and mighty as well as the average person. Regardless of who or what we are, we are vulnerable humans and subject to the most irrational of traits. So this is uh, Rabbi Abraham Torsky writing. And so the the commentator uh, that I'm studying writing about him says, I think Rabbi Tversky's asking us to think over those times we've secretly resented having to do something for somebody else or for God if it didn't bring us some immediate benefit. Sometimes that benefit is material, and sometimes it is intangible, honor, recognition, power, influence, acclaim. These are not bad in themselves, but seeking them as a price of good behavior can lead to disappointment or anger if they're not forthcoming, right? So even the greatest 
Even the most amazing servants who really live their lives as lives of giving can have moments where if you're not going to get something back for it, if nobody's going to see you do it, if you're not going to get the proper um, acclaim for it, if your name doesn't go on the article, um, then sometimes we can we can come to a place right of disappointment or even anger if we are attached to needing something in return for what we're giving. And so the Torah is saying, uh, according to Rabbi Tversky, the Torah is saying even the priests have to be told when it comes to something that you're not going to get anything for, they need an extra level of being pushed to do it because even the priests, and this is another thing I love about at least the way our tradition explains these texts, um, is that the priests weren't above anybody else, right? And we're going to see that in a moment also, that they weren't above anybody else and that they they have responsibilities that give them um, some status within the community, but that that Torah recognizes, according again, according to the later tradition, reading it into this, that the, the Torah recognizes that they're human beings, and that if they don't get a portion of the sacrifice, they might get a little lazy, a little lax about offering the Ola in the morning and offering it in the evening. All right. Let's raise so, hand. Amy? Yeah, who? Uh, it's, it's me, Bert. Yes, uh, Bert. Uh, this was meat on the fire? Yes. yes. So I'm sure as a carnivore, you can appreciate this. The priests are there all night long. Uh, this is meat without blemish. This is great stuff that people are bringing. Great A meat. Right. And the um, uh, the barbecue, which is going all, all night, must really, really be tempting. So I think that's another level on top of this. They're stand, it's like standing next to the barbecue, and you can't even taste to see if it's done right. Right, or when someone's when the cook in the kitchen's cutting the chicken, and you want to reach in and grab it, right? And I, I always want to smack people. It's like, get out of my! Like, are you kidding me right now? I've worked so hard on this, and now you're gonna start picking at the best parts. Get out of my kitchen, right? So, um, but right, so right, it's tempting. It's really tempting to smell that going, and you're gonna get no part of it. Now they're not up all night. Are they up all night watching us? <laughs> So they well, just, they may be they just get the beginning of the cooking. Because they have to make sure that the fire keeps going. So it has to be fed uh, fuel. Going. Just a, uh, can I, I, I must have this wrong because that was not <laughs> the comment I was going to make about why. But you ask, why, uh, why is this uh, uh, offering so special? I, am I right about this is the one, this is the offering that is for God. It's burned all. It's burned up. And is this the offering that it's got the comment because uh, it it brings a, an odor that's pleasing to God? Now we know God doesn't need to smell good stuff and or eat good stuff. But uh, is this is this that offering that is so special because it is for God? No. Well, I mean, no yeah, yes, it may be special because all of it goes to God. Yeah. But, but presumably. All of the offerings give God a reach nichoach, a okay. pleasing odor. Because remember, the parts that are going to get burned for God of the other offerings are the fat and the entrails. So it's the fat that gives that gorgeous smell. Okay. I knew I had it wrong. So, God, so that's God's portion of every korban. 
So you're right. The God gets a portion of every korban, which is the reach nichoach, the pleasing odor, um, the pleasing aroma, I would say, as a carnivore. Uh, and um, the, the, the olah, the special thing about the olah is that God gets the whole thing. Right. Well, for heaven's sakes, you don't want to mess with God's offering. Uh, right. That really would be okay, not so good. That's another great explanation then for why use the word tzav. Right? Why be so machmir? Why be so strong about this? Because this is God's offering, <laughs> right? Right? That you. This is not one you want to mess up. Right? This is one right. you want to pay extra special attention to because this one is entirely burned up. Well, I thought that was the point of why it's all burned up. I mean, nobody's yeah. supposed to touch it. It is for God. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Sarah's got her hand up. It's an exercise. In self-control, right? So that so that even the priests need an exercise in self-control. Yes, that, that all of us are tempted as human beings, and that the priests are no different than the rest of us in terms of having proclivities that don't necessarily line up, right, with um, with what their duty is in the moment, and that uh, that if they're not going to, and as I said. Scholars argue that that it means if they're not going to get any of it, then, you know, it might be a little easier to be a little bit lax um, or to be tempted to just stray from exactly what they're supposed to do. So let's look at the text again. We're going to look at verse 3. V'lavash ha-kohen midovad vad yilbash al so the priest is going to dress in linen, and he's got on linen underwear, sevad. So he's wearing a tunic made out of linen. Linen was imported from Egypt in the ancient Near East. So Israel imports linen uh, as a, an expensive fabric. Therefore, it becomes the fabric that is worn by the most uh, important people in the moment of doing the most important stuff which are the Kohanim. And so they're wearing these, uh, he's wearing a tunic, but underneath the tunic are michnasevad. So michnasayim, what, what we know in modern Hebrew means pants. But um, what I would say, having grown up in the South, he's wearing breeches and he's wearing linen breeches under his tunic, al bisaro. So that's how we know it's under the tunic because it's on his flesh. But it's also to cover his flesh, right? You start moving around and going up steps to go to the Mizbeach, to go to the altar with a tunic on, and guess what can happen? People can see up your skirt. So he has to wear michnesevad. He has to wear uh, linen underwear on his flesh. And what's going to happen? What, they go through all this elaborate stuff about what he's dressed in. Veheirim etadeshen. What is all this stuff about dressing like this? What is it all for? He's going to take up, right? So um, high, it's about high. And so he's going to lift the ashes, the deshen, which the fire ate, right? The, the ashes of the etaola of the Ola al Hamizbeach. So the fire ate the Ola, and what does it leave? It leaves the Deshen, it leaves the ashes, 
Bisamal etzel hamizbeach. And he's going to put them beside the altar. Ufashat et begadav. And now he's going to take off his, his stuff, the clothes. And what is he going to do? Velavash begadim achirim. He's going to put on other clothing. And he's going to take the uh, deshen, the, what's it called? The ashes, to outside the camp, to a place that is tahor, a place that is pure. We get all of this description of him putting on all these fancy clothes. And what is he putting on the fancy clothes to do? He's putting on the fancy clothes to take the ashes off of the Mizbeach, off of the altar. He's going to put some of them, this is how most translate commentators translate this, he's going to put some of them, Etzel HaMizbeach, next to the altar, and the rest he's going to take outside the camp. He's going to change his clothes, so he's going to get out of his um, finery, out of his priestly linen finery, and he's going to put on other clothes. He's still dealing right with the sancta he's still dealing with something that is part of his ritual service and he's going to take those ashes to outside the camp now a lot of our commentators want to talk about that this is a a big deal that he's taking the the ashes outside the camp i'm going to come out of the text now why is it a big deal that he's dealing with the ashes that he takes the ashes outside the camp I'm thinking about the word tahor, and doesn't that mean ritually clean? So he's not just taking them outside the camp. It's to a special place that's tahor. It seems like it, too, is a, is a special, maybe designated place. Well, so it's a place that's not tameh. Right. It's a place that's not been contaminated. Yeah. Quite by something. So, so what does that tell us about the ashes? Right. It tells us that even the ashes, because they are from an Olah, have to go to a place that's Tahor. So even the remnants, how do we treat our garbage? <laughs> right. Like um, and, and most of their garbage would have been garbage. Of course, we know that they have ancient Near Eastern dumps just like we have. Right. That's how we get a lot of our archaeological treasures. Um, but often, how do we deal with the remnants, the not so pretty part? right, of what has been our divine service, we like, that's not the sexy part, get rid of it. Yeah. Right? Um, And it's very clear that in this priestly system that even the ashes, which we think of as so dirty and gross, have you ever, you know, I remember in Duluth cleaning out the, you know, we had a oven that was a fireplace, you know, and it's like cleaning that thing out was disgusting. It was in your, you could smell it in your hair. It's just awful. But um, but for this system, because it was part of what's left over from something that was about bringing us close to the divine or bringing the divine close to us, even that has to be treated with respect. He has to, you know, dress and take them to um, a place that is pure. So you, you, Amy, you asked why do they need to take them away? So I'm thinking, okay, you've got at least at the moment, a minimum of 600,000 people. You got a lot of stuff that's being done each day, 365 days a year, 40 years in the desert to start with. 
And if you just leave the ashes there, after a while, you're going to end up with no altar and just a huge pile of ashes. Right. So a friendly correction is that what I asked was, why do some people think it's a big deal that the priests are commanded to remove the ashes? Well, ostensibly, nobody else can come in there. Wasn't so it the ostensibly, but he, they could just take it off the altar and take it to the opening, Jody. Is it not that um, for the priest and the priest and what is considered holy to be brought out to the people because not everybody can enter, of course. Is it not to share what is holy with the people, even though it is in a specialized, clean place? Is it not now part of the public? So maybe, but I don't know where else they put it. If you're cleaning off the ashes and you've burnt a bull in the morning and a bull in the evening, there's a lot of ashes, right? So they have to get rid of them. We know that. Bert's right. They have to be gotten rid of. But, but some commentators want to make a big deal out of the fact that it's the priests who carry them from the Mishkan outside the camp. Sarah? They have to do labor. So they have to, they're, well, presumably they're doing a lot of labor, but yeah. say more. Sarah, you yeah. want to say something? They have to do labor with the leftovers so that not some poor people become janitors. The they take, the priests themselves have to take care of it. That's exactly exactly right. That that it's they have to be gotten rid of and only priests can be in there. Okay, but the priest could like take this big thing, this wheelbarrow full of ashes and say to some schlepper to the janitor, it's your right. job, right? To to deal with this mess. This is the leftovers. This like we've done the important stuff. We've, we've offered, we did all the, the sexy stuff, and now you take, you know, what's left and take it outside the camp and deal with all of that mess because it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not fancy anymore. It's an, it's an absolute essential part of their duty to clean the grill, to clean the ashes, and to carry it themselves outside the camp. Yes. And your point, Jody. That's a public act. The priests in their, you know, in their clothes, you know, carrying the ashes, schlepping out the the gross stuff that's left over, um, right? You take it outside the camp. Everyone's going to see that, um, and so it declares to everybody that the priests are needing to do this part of the work as well. And someone just had a question about work. Amy from Natasha, is this considered work then, as in would they still do this on Shabbat? This is considered sacred service. So the same word for work, avodah, is used both for fixing the drip under the sink. That's avodah, that's work, what the rest of us would do that we don't do on Shabbos. But then there's avodah that is sacred service, and that is done on Shabbos. Mm. Shabbos and holidays, there, there was an extra offering made on Shabbat, excuse me, and on the holidays. And that's why we add Musaf, we add an additional service on Shabbat and on holidays because there was an added, you know, we have prayer services whenever we would have had an offering in the temple. So we have Shachrit, the morning, we have Mincha, the afternoon, and we have Mayriv, the evening. We add a fourth one, Musaf, 
on Shabbat and the holidays because there was an extra sacrifice. So not only did they not not only did they not refrain from doing it on Shabbat and holidays, they had an extra one. They had more work to do. And this is where we had the conversation about, you know, rabbis work on Shabbos. You know, we go into this business because we love Shabbat and holidays. And then <laughs> we work on Shabbat and holidays, right, the rest of our lives. But, of course, we would use a different term for what that is, right? That's service. That's divine service. All right. So two good questions. One from uh, Kayla, which is, why can't the fire go out? Let's let's hold that because that's an important piece of commentary from the tradition. Dana says, is this a ritual that's connected to our present day Jewish rituals around a human body at death? Very interesting. Um, Jana says, is this also referring to the humanness of even the priests, meaning they are commanded to not fall into selfishness and they have to take the ashes out to do the cleaning? Yes. So to, to your question, Jana, yes, I think that's exactly the point is that they are, just so nobody thinks they're somehow different from every other human being, their humanness is there because recognizing that they could be tempted by some things and don't think you're all that, Mr. Cohen. You know, you, you still need to take out the ashes. You need to deal with, right? You need to deal with the rest of, of the business of sacrifice, of korbanim, korbanot, which is um, cleaning the the grill. Okay, so let's go to uh, Dana's question because then we're going to move on to Kayla's question. Is this a ritual that's connected to our present day Jewish rituals around the human body at death? Very interesting. So I think, um, Dana, what you're implying is that there seems to be a respect for the animal's body even after it's turned into ash. Yeah that there's, there's a regard for it and it's treated respectfully, even though it's now just ash, is that related to the fact that we are very respectful and very concerned with the kavod, the, the dignity of a corpse? Um, so that's interesting. Like anthropologically, is it the same impulse? Is it the same instinct? So I guess part of that question would depend on what is the motivation of the people who created taking the ashes out of the camp as a part of the sacred service? If it's because the animal should have dignity because it's an offering to God or because it was a living being, okay, then yes, I would say maybe that impulse is the same in both cases. How we treat the dead, just because it's dead doesn't mean we don't recognize that it was once living. Maybe that's the same impulse. Or it could be to two different things, right? That one is because this is service of the divine. That's why this animal is treated the way it is. I don't know how they felt about the corpses of animals that were not sacrificed, right? We, we don't know. Um, but it could be that this is just because it was given to God. It is now, you know, it is now designated for the divine and therefore it had a holy purpose and therefore you have to continue to treat it as it has a holy purpose. Um, and if that's the case, that might be a different instinct, a different impulse, you know, a different set of values that lead to that behavior. That, that the human body was, was in the image of the divine. We know that impulse. You know, we know that the reason the human body is treated with such respect in our tradition is because it, it, was, an, it was created, but Elohim, in the image of the divine. 
And you don't ever want to have the image of the divine desecrated in any way. So you don't let it decompose. So that's why we buried so quickly, right? Because you didn't want the body to begin decomposing because then you are marring the image of God. Even though it's a natural process, you're, you're not supposed to have that be visible to everybody else. All right. So to Kayla's point, we're going to go to verse five. Beha'esh alamizbeach tu kadbo, lo the fire on the altar that's burning in it, meaning in the altar, right, is not to go out. So what does that mean? How do you make sure that happens? Uvi'er aleha hakohen etzim, baboker, baboker. How does it happen that that doesn't go out? It happens because the priest is going to burn on it etzim, wood. Baboker, baboker, this repetition of morning, morning means like yom, yom, every morning. And he will arrange on it, on it, the ola, the uh, offering, and the fat parts of the shlamim offering. A fire will constantly, consistently to be, be going, burning on the altar. It shall not go out. All right. So Kayla's question is, wait, what, what's up with that? Right? Um, why can't the fire go out? So anybody want to render a guess? Why, why can't the fire go out? Uh, Okay, so it's way too close to the eternal flame for for me to not draw some kind of a comparison. Um, But also, if the fire goes out, this is really even more work to get it going, to get it, you know, I just think you keep it going. um, And I don't know, for me, I, I just can't help but draw the comparison to the eternal flame. Right. So, but the eternal flame. Now you can draw that comparison between this and the ner tamid that we have. The the eternal flame in Torah is not eternal. It's regular. Okay. The priests lit the menorah as part of the sacred service. If they had to light it as part of the sacred service, it means it wasn't lit all the time. Yeah. Went out. Right. And then they had to clean the wicks and they cleaned everything. And then they lit the menorah as part of the avodah. So in Torah, in this system, there is no eternal flame. This is the only one. This is the only one that is going constantly, this fire on the altar. But I think, to your point, now us having the eternal flame is the same thing as the answer to Kayla's question, why can't this go out? Judith Ubik? If you let the fire go out, the meat will not turn to ashes. Well, presumably the the meat could turn to ashes and then you're done. Okay, we wait until it's turned to ash. But you have to, you have a time span here that's important too. From the end of one day to the beginning of the next day. I, I think the time may be important. How? Because it, it ends it starts on one day, ends on the next, and our holidays do as well. We start it in the evening and 
the next day begins in the morning um, until the next. You're saying it's a connector. Yeah, I think it's a connector between the days. Okay. So that if it's still burning from the day before, it somehow links the evening before to the morning after. And it gives a more, gives a feeling of eternal, of continuing. Okay. Continuity. With the yes. Okay, right. Natasha, you were going to say something, and then I want to go to Lynn Himmelstein. Oh, it was the same thing as what Jody said. I had the, the Nair Tamid. The, the, yeah. the, the idea of connecting that to the Nair Tamid. Yeah. The instinct of which is what Lynn uh, typed in the chat box. Um, exactly right. That it is, if, if the flame goes out, what have you done, essentially? If the flame goes out on the Mizbeach, you have stopped attending... To that which to the, draws God close and draws us close to God. That by letting the fire go out, we don't, right, we don't blow out Shabbos candles. Right? We have to teach our, our little ones not to blow those out because we're always <laughs> blowing out birthday candles, right? Because we're done with that. Now it's time to eat the cake. Right? But that's not true of something that is ritual, that is all about just the ritual. There's, no, there's nothing on the other side of it. There's not cake on the other side of lighting Shabbat candles, right? The treat is not the point. The lighting of the candles is the point. And so if you blow them out, what have you just said? You've ended it. You've ended it. And it's like, wait a minute. Those were for us and God to acknowledge that we're in a different kind of relationship for the next 24 hours. So you don't blow out the Shabbos candle. I still like get freaked out when I have to blow out Shabbos candles in the sanctuary, let's say, right? I hate it. I hate it. Because there's a way that it kind of feels like it undoes the intention of lighting them. So they wouldn't let the fire go out, God forbid, on the Mizbeach, because what, you're going to say, now I don't need to tend it because we're kind of done for the day? You're never done. You're never done serving the divine. Never. Get smaller Shabbos candles. Yeah, get smaller Shabbos candles. (laughs) They're still going to have to burn all the way down, and I don't want to leave them there. It's not safe, you know, whatever. So, um, all right. So, so that's one answer. But the rabbis, because they're the rabbis, our commentators, they're going to have another answer. Any guesses what that might be? Constant devotion to God. Absolutely, that is the is the instinct here. But but the Svadimet has a beautiful rendering of this that's a little different. So we're looking at the text, right? So the, the fire should be burning in the altar. In because it's like a fire pit, right? That's why it uses the word in, not on. Um, and it will not be covered up. You know, that's meaning smothered. You know, how you put out a, a big fire is you smother it, you cover it. And the priest will feed it uh, wood in the, every morning. And arrange on it, right, the the offering that's about greeting or gratitude. A fire will always be burning uh, on the altar. It will not be put out. Any guesses of what someone like the Svadimet is going to do with this as a spiritual teaching? Jody. The fire in your heart. Okay. So if we move from this being a system of 
um, a sacrificial system and we move to what replaces it in our tradition, which is the tefillah, right? Prayer. Tefillot now replace uh, korbanot, uh, offerings. The offering now is not an animal. The offering now is what? In tefillah, what is the offering? Is our heart, our spirit. So our heart is, is that's the altar. The heart is the altar. And what we offer are tefillot, right? We offer prayer on the altar of the heart. That is now, right, avodah shebalev is what the rabbis call it. Avodah, it's still avodah, it's still sacred service, but it's avodah shebalev, um, service that's in and of the heart. So John is writing that it takes effort to keep a consistent relationship with God. A relationship takes two. Amen, amen. Um, and Bert was going to say something. Bert, do you want to say something? It's interesting. There, uh, in in the Amidah prayer, there is actually um, uh, traditionally something that talks about the keeping the fire burning. I forget the number of it, and it has been removed by the Reformed and Reconstructionist movements because we don't believe in sacrifice. But I read a very interesting. Uh, take on this actually by a conservative rabbi who said, no, leave it in because it really is about the fire in our hearts. And Uh what they're asking God is to help us keep that fire burning in our hearts of love for God and love for godliness and being a godly person, which I thought was a very, very interesting take on taking traditional language and without throwing it out, reading it a different way. All right, so the Sfatimet and the commentators that I'm pointing to are going to reconstruct this language exactly the same way, except what are they going to do? They're going to look at the Hebrew. They're going to look at the construct of the Hebrew exactly as we have it. That it's the fire on the altar. Not Don't read it as prescriptive. Read it as descriptive. That the fire on the altar, it's not that it's not allowed to go out. You won't let it go out. Rather, the Sfatimet has a beautiful teaching that makes this a promise. This is a promise by God. The fire on the altar shall never go out. I promise. However hard it gets, however despairing you may be, however distant you feel from me, however distant you feel I am from you, I promise you, the fire on the altar, lo it can't be covered over. It can't be smothered, no matter what. David says, isn't it also a never-dying relationship to God? Absolutely, right? So this idea that it's that it goes all the time means there isn't a moment that we're not in relationship to the divine. But I love that the Sfat Emet wants to come in and reread this, not as a commandment, but as a promise. That God says, however hard it feels, however terribly boring and claustrophobic quarantine is, there is still relationship to me. There is still a fire on the altar, even if it looks really, really small right now, right? Even if it's really tiny right now, there is a fire burning in there, literally in it, in you, it can't be smothered. It can't be. You may not know that. You may not feel that. You may not be tending to it so much right now, but it can't be put out. 
and uh, Chef Rabbi Chef Gold ties the verb, ties a, a lovely uh, part of the, I believe it's Song of Songs, for love is as strong as death, right? And, and won't be uh, put out. That that fire is a fire of love, a fire of awe um, of the divine. And, it, and that just can't ever go completely away. Jana says beautiful. Yeah, it's a really beautiful teaching because sometimes we need that assurance, don't we? Right. Um, if it's not a commandment, says Lisa, it is our choice. Right. Our choice, our promise that it's there. The question is, are you going to tend it or not? Um, and when it talks about the priest taking the ashes, it uses the verb to lift up. And so Dr. Kamiankowski wants to suggest that um, they understood the rabbis did harim to take up to be not simply remove, but rather to dedicate. And they referred to this ritual as trumat deshen, the offering of the ashes. So for the rabbis, they understood that lifting of the ashes as a dedication, as an offering that even the, the dregs, the dross, the remnants of our right offering prayer on our on the altar of our hearts even the ashes cleaning them out lifting them up um is its own act of dedication like so often we feel like you know okay once i've you know once i've done my intentional stuff i've done my sitting meditation for today you know then kind of the rest is just the ashes it's just like stuff left over we're done we're done with the offering part and they and I think the tradition wants to suggest no. That lingering feeling of calm, the maybe the fact that you won't snap you know, at somebody because you took the opportunity to sit, because you took the opportunity to allow some stuff to be consumed on that misbeach, on that altar, that that's holy too. Right? The remnants of that is holy too and deserves holy attention and intention. Just like the core practice, the more focused um, understanding that what we're doing is is avodasha balev is is actual divine service of the heart. Judith, how this relates to cremation also, because in a way the ashes of the body returning to the earth is also an offering. Okay, not to the rabbis, but okay. <laughs> no, not to Orthodox rabbis. But well, as the world as the world gets as the world gets more complicated and more crowded, we're not going to have room to bury everybody in the earth. So I can see a, a reality in turning ashes into ashes and dust to dust as a preservation method of the earth. So um, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, the rabbis would say dust to dust. Yes, not ashes. We're not ashes. Animals were turned into ashes. Human bodies were treated differently because they housed a human being. They housed a human soul and human bodies should not be treated. God forbid, like animals on the altar turned into ash. So like that's, that's the traditional um, differentiation is that not all ashes are sacred. Not all carrying out of the ashes would have been sacred work. When you're doing it in your backyard, it's just a barbecue and you're just cleaning. Right? That it's intentional. And I get what you're saying, that if it's a corpse, obviously, who's turned into ashes, you would treat it 
with respect and dignity and right. like the sacrifice. But I think the rabbis were very, 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 very nervous about wedding sacrifice and human beings, right? They, they wanted to get the, the Israelite tradition and the rabbis wanted to get as far away from that partnering as possible. But, if you're not killing a human, but after someone has died, to turn the body into ashes, would that be looked upon the same way? It would be. It has been looked upon by the tradition as as corrupting an image of God. That you mm-hmm. are you are desacralizing an image of God by burning it up, by destroying it. That it has to go back to God the way it came. It has to be given back to God. Just as it was when you died, you can't you can't desecrate it by destroying it. So that I mean, that's been the relationship of the tradition till now. Obviously, within non-orthodoxy, that is changing. Right. As people, and, and I don't think it's mostly about space. I really don't, because frankly, I would rather see everyone choose to be buried because then we'd have to get rid of a lot of strip malls. And have beautiful cemeteries in their place. So people who want to make an environmental argument, I disagree completely because I think, or not completely, but um, not to be too strident, but I really think that cemeteries are some of our most beautiful places in the middle of Look at Hillside. Look where Hillside is, right? When I go to Hillside, it's like there's the 405 and the mall. That's usually my relationship to that neighborhood. The mall, because there's a great Marshalls there, uh, and (laughs) And um, and the freeway, right? That that's my relationship to that area until I do a funeral, and then I'm in this beautiful, green, quiet, sacred space in the middle of LA. Um, so, so, so I really think that it's it's a nice idea to believe that we we will need those places you know, that are reserved for our dead in the middle of our cities where we live. Um, but pe- I think the reason the relationship is changing is because of the expense. I think it's become so ridiculously expensive to bury somebody that people who die, I, I even feel it. You know, they, don't, they don't want their kid to spend $50,000 on their plot and funeral and coffin when she could use that $50,000 right, to help put a kid through college. Right. And so part of it is the expense of burying in the ground now, I think, is driving a lot of people to consider cremation who wouldn't have before. Is that the is that the only reason you can think of justifying cremation? No, I'm not talking about justifying. I'm talking about what I think is driving the move of Jews away from the taboo of cremation. Uh-huh. What's driving them to confront that taboo and push it back, I think, is is financial. Expense, yeah. It's the expense. I would rather be buried in the ground because I think it's an important ritual for my daughter to have. God forbid a million times it should happen only 100 years from now. But when it happens, I think it's an important thing for her to have a body to put in the ground. I'm really attached to our, our rituals. Both of my parents were cremated. I got handed a box. Somebody handed me a box. Here's your dad. Here's your mother. It was horrible. Horrible. And I'm holding my mother. It's ridiculous. 
I really am attached to the rituals where we, we lower someone into the ground. We cover, cover them for their final sleep. I think it's beautiful. I think it, it offers closure that we just don't get when someone hands you a FedEx box and say, here's your father. Good luck with that. Well, on the other hand, my children, when Richard was cremated, their father was cremated, they took his ashes and put them in his favorite place in the world, which was the sea. Right. And so I get that for some people, that's lovely. It, it was, I'm just saying. Not I for you. And so my point is, I would love to give that to Eliana. I'm not sure I'm ready to spend $60,000 to do it. Yeah. And take that money from her that could be used for her life, could be used for her future and spend it on a ritual I want to give her because I feel attached to it. That's what I'm saying. I think a lot of Jews are in my spot where they are either they say, oh, fine, we'll just spread his ashes in the water. He loved the water. So obviously then there's no problem. But for some of us who are still pushing against against cremation because we're attached to our rituals around burial, even we are feeling a push that is mostly, in my case anyway, and for a lot of my Jews, um, financial. So Rita, you have your hand raised? Uh, hi. I wanted to give an alternative to the straight cremation. Uh, my husband and I had decided to donate our bodies to science. And there um, you feel that uh, although in the end they cremate the body, but it's been serving a useful purpose. So that's sort of a variation on the cremation. Yeah, that's what my mother did. So I got her ashes a year and a half later. So then all I could think about was where was she till now? It was yeah, not- well, they uh, they often tell you what your what your you know they tell the relatives um, what the research was involved with. So it, it's a very gratifying feeling. So very it's an alternative, a version of cremation. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Um, the other is that they're doing a more uh, natural environmentally friendly burial which is not no casket they wrap the body in a shroud and and they do something else so that it and they plant a seedling there and so the body decomposes and feeds the tree uh that's growing there so um you know like that's that's something that feels to me like a middle ground you know between you know not taking up so much space and using so many resources but also not necessarily um cremation all right. Any anything else there, on this before? There are ashes, and then there are ashes. There are ashes, and then there are ashes. Okay. All right. So I want to go to. Um, I think I sent it out to you. Yeah. No doubt, many of us would have preferred that the Torah command us to become quote a kingdom of prophets, collectively denouncing the world's inequities, speaking out for justice, and defending the downtrodden. But it is to the priesthood that we Jews are taught to aspire and the priesthood from which we must seek instruction uh, in this book of Vayikra. What can we learn from the role of the priest and from these methodical instructions for the slaughter and dismemberment of animals for ritual offering? If human beings were gentle and benevolent by nature, we might not need the stern disciplinary teachings of the priesthood, meaning then we could just be a nation of prophets, right? But that's but Torah seems to recognize who we actually are. The Torah's insights is that priestly service is what our homicidal proclivities demand and deserve. I'm very in touch these days of quarantine with my homicidal proclivities. And so we are the descendants of Pinchas, right, who is, uh, who's violent, but go down to the next uh, paragraph. As officiants at the altar, 
Their killing is tamed and domesticated, meaning right, the Israelites. Their dangerous proclivities neutralized. Here I love, and this is the part I, I want to go to, stripped of the normal male prerogatives of land ownership and military service. They become, as my teacher Malila Helner Eshed, who's also my teacher at Hartman, suggests, God's housewives. Feminized men who dress in skirts and busy themselves with the domestic work of cooking and cleaning in God's holy dwelling. Right? So sub sublimation of aggression. So it's an interesting way to think about this whole system. It's an interesting way to think about all of these rituals and about the priesthood itself, that it, that it undercuts the, the aggression, the homicidal aggression that's always there. So who's lifted up as the most sacred, as the representatives of the sacred? God's housewives is what um, Dr. Helner Eshed calls it, the priesthood, right? That they are cooking and cleaning in God's house. They're God's domestic workers, right? And that this is what is lifted up as, as the most sacred act, which I think is a really interesting take. Uh, on the priesthood itself. You have the piece so you can read uh, the rest of it, but I found that to be a very interesting commentary um, by Malila brought by Janet Martyr in your green book. This piece is actually in the green women's Torah commentary. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.